Hi, I'm John Moskow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Reich, director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab and the host of the Teach Lab podcast, as well as five open online courses on edX. Dr. Reich is the author of Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. Welcome, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Tech has been promoted as a vehicle to promote equality in education. What are some of these claims and why do you think they're inaccurate? We're especially interested in talking about K through 12 education. Yeah, well, for the last two decades, education technology evangelists have promised that we're on the cusp of a dramatic transformation in educational systems, where new technologies will make learning more personalized, more effective, more efficient. And oftentimes they describe new technologies as democratizing education. Um, democratizing can often be a kind of slippery word in this sort of context, you know, usually is sort of saying like, well, we're going to make things more fair or more equal or more just without kind of exactly saying how one might do so. But it really stands astride these claims, you know, 30, 40 years of education technology research. There, there are two things that we find over and over again when new technologies find their way in schools. Um, the first thing that we find is that when teachers get access to new technologies, they use them to extend existing practices. So the most sort of intuitive thing for a teacher to do with a new piece of technology is to do whatever it is that they were doing before, just using the new technology for it. And I'm sure your listeners can think of all kinds of examples of, you know, uh, grading in electronic grade books instead of regular grade books or showing things on a projection screen instead of a acetate projector or something like that. But then the second thing that we find is that where there are kind of innovative, beneficial, novel uses of technology, they disproportionately benefit the affluent. Their benefits tend to accrue to, to schools, to neighborhoods with a financial, social, technical capital to take advantage of new innovations, even when those innovations are free. So even when we see you know, new websites, new web services, free resources, online resources, it's very expensive and complicated to maintain the systems to be able to access and thoughtfully use those new tools. So, you know, there, I think there are a handful of examples out there of things that we might be able to find where new technologies were particularly beneficial to, to low-income students, to historically marginalized students, but sort of, you know, kind of as like a, as a first approximation, as a first guess, if there's new technologies entering schools, the, the best bet is that it's going to disproportionately benefit the most affluent schools and the most affluent kids within schools. Justin, doesn't... I trickle down eventually to the lower finance schools. Uh, you know, some people have described that as kind of like the Tesla model, the idea that like if we want uh, fancy electronic cars for everyone, the first thing we have to do is to build them for the, you know, the, the elites and then it will sort of make its way down. I don't, I don't think there's great evidence of that happening. I did my doctoral dissertation in another sort of hype age when uh, we called it Web 2.0 at the time, when blogs and wikis and payment tools and other things were sort of just making it possible for you as a user to interact with the web as a, in a way that was not just passive consumption. So, you know, other than email and a few other things, you know, for most of the 90s and early 2000s, if you went to a website, it was to read something, maybe later to watch something. It wasn't really till 2005, six, seven that you might, you know, a regular person might with no sort of special skills like FTP or HTML or things like that would go to the web and put stuff on there. 
And I did a ton of uh, observations, teacher interviews, visited schools across the country. And for instance, one of the things that I would find all the time is that you'd ask teachers who are, who are implementing new technologies, sort of, well, wh- where, in, where in the system are you implementing these new technologies? And they'd say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing it mostly with my AP students, with my honors students. And you'd say, why? And they say, well, you know, I've got fewer of them. I feel a little bit more comfortable if things don't work out. They're generally more compliant, those kinds of things. So like here are the students who sort of like already were doing best and being most successful. And a lot of the innovation time and energy that teachers were putting into things were going to, you know, their, their already successful, best supported students. It may be that some of those things trickled down to the rest of their classes and so forth. But I think on the whole, there's not a lot of evidence of innovations that you could say, well, well, we did these things and we really targeted them at elite students, the most affluent students, and really beneficial versions of these things trickle down to other people, in part because we just see like, like differences in patterns of use. And again, these things go back decades, the NAEP test, the National Assessment of Education Progress relatively frequently does some kind of math test. There's surveys in addition to testing. They also ask kids questions. And there's some questions that they've done uh, with math tests for a number of years, which are things like, what do you do with software in your classes? And consistently we find that when white students, when affluent students answer these questions, they're more likely to answer with um, using them for simulation, using them for demonstration, using them for sort of complex activities where black students, brown students, minority students, students in poverty are more likely to say they use them for drill or practice. And uh, affluent students are more likely to say that they have more mentorship and adult support, um, you know, that, that sort of technology is complementing what teachers are doing. Low-income students are more likely to say that they use technology more independently with less mentor support and guidance, that technology is being used to replace teachers rather than to sort of augment and complement them. So there's good reasons. That I, I think there's not a lot of evidence that I've ever read for the claim that the benefits of technologies can be designed for affluent folks, elite folks, and they'll sort of trickle down across the whole system. So it sounds as though the introduction of new technologies actually increases the digital divide. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to summarize overall the kinds of things that happens. Again, it's not in every single circumstance. um, Math tutoring software, things like assistments and mafia, which used to be called Carnegie Learning. Some of those things have some evidence behind them that they benefit students broadly, that if you compare a classroom that does regular math teaching five days a week, with a classroom that does regular math teaching three days a week and two days a week of practice problems. Or in the case of assessment, they actually do regular math instruction five days a week, but assessments is a, is a tool that you use to input your homework. And so the teacher the night before the morning uh, before class sort of knows how each student was doing, how their whole class was doing, and can kind of tailor instruction a little bit. Some of those things have some okay track records of disproportionately benefiting students who are furthest behind in math, which usually correlates, you know, tragically with, with race and affluence in the United States. So it's, it's not, it's not 100% of all applications, you know, we could, we could go through education technology and find bits and pieces where we said, oh, things seem to be working a little bit better over here. But if you were to take the whole thing in the aggregate, that you would say, yeah, that that folks with more financial, social, technical capital to take advantage of new innovations disproportionately benefit from those innovations. So if the impacts of ed tech are really quite limited, 
what do you see as better strategies for transforming education? Well, I think all of our strategies for improving education are limited, at least as you compare them to what education technology evangelists promise. Um, I don't I don't think there's anything out there that we would say, wow, this is a thing that's really going to make, you know, fourth graders in, in 2030 dramatically smarter, dramatically more prepared for the world than fourth graders in 2020 were. The work of human development is slow. It's iterative. It goes backwards sometimes, sort of a continuous improvement process. And I think technology actually can be helpful and important in that process. You know, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic is that there are times in society where schools need to periodically close and having digital tools to be able to maintain continuity of learning when school buildings can't be accessed is a pretty good thing for society to figure out how to do. And we're going to have to do more of it, you know, as the climate catastrophe continues. And as there are more school weeks lost every year to overheated buildings, to fires, to flooding, to smoke, to disease events, things like that. You know, the other thing about technology is I, many of us recognize that our working lives, our social lives, our civic lives are transformed by technology in various kinds of ways. And so I think it is important for young people to have exposure to, you know, ways of doing work with digital tools. You know, I was a history teacher, sort of impossible to imagine doing history or teaching history now without the, you know, the incredible archived materials all around the world, all the different ways that historians in a disciplinary way communicate with each other digitally. So it's not about getting rid of technology. It's about, you know, being realistic about what kinds of gains we might see from the implementation of new technologies and also recognizing that, you know, that it's, it's one tool, one, one way of improving schools. And then there are lots of other good ways of improving schools. I mean, when I talk to educators working poverty impacted schools right now, their most urgent concerns are about helping dysregulated kids get along with each other and function in schools. It's about, you know, it's about sort of rebuilding some of the community that's been devastated over the course of the pandemic, managing the sort of grief and loss and tragedy. Those are important things to work on. And I just, I don't think technology is particularly helpful with those domains. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of kids who sort of fell behind in math during the last few years. And there actually might be some technology applications which are useful in those kinds of things. So recognizing the limitations of technology and sort of following up on, on Amy's question, what are some of the ways as you go around talking to people that schools and districts can invest in helping to create more equitable educators? I mean, what, what are the things that can, that can make a difference in school environments that, that you've seen and where technology may or may not play a role, but is not the primary uh, focus. Yeah, that, you know, that's a, that's a great question. That's going to be a generational question for us to wrestle with. In our lab at the MIT Teaching Systems Lab, we do have some sort of technology-oriented ideas for addressing some of that. So one of the things that we've observed, especially following the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed, was just a surge of interest among educators in thinking about issues of difference in power and equality. And of course, there's been a national pushback against that with anti-CRT, don't say gay laws and, and things like that. So there are multiple perspectives on this. But I think that, you know, there are many educators who in the last few years have sort of recognized how race and power and difference show up in their classrooms and their schools, and they want to know more about it. And they want to be able to 
be part of a generation of educators that's doing better around that. Schools also don't have infinite capacity to generate new learning experiences for educators about these ideas. So we partnered with Rich Milner, who's the president of the American Education Research Association right now. He's a faculty member at the Vanderbilt. He runs the Institute for Race, Research, and Justice. And we built an online course called Becoming a More Equitable Educator. And part of we built it in a sort of very modular fashion. So someone could come you know, if they were the only teacher in their school who's interested in these things, they'd come online and do this course with us. But also if there are groups of educators in a school who are interested, people could come and take our materials, which are freely available and openly licensed and sort of remix them in different kinds of blended ways in their professional learning program. And, you know, and the theory there was that if there's sort of a missing need for curriculum and professional learning, that online tools can help. The other thing that we include um, that we're really interested in working on in our lab is uh, we think when teachers learn, they have insufficient opportunities to practice. So when teachers learn, they listen to people talk about teaching and they talk with each other about teaching, but they very rarely do teaching. So we build these practice spaces, digital clinical simulations, uh, learning environments inspired by games that help people rehearse for and reflect on important decisions in teaching. So in our course of becoming a more equitable educator, you have these kind of digital simulations that you can practice applying some of the mindsets that that we're trying to teach in the course. Now, none of that replaces a whole bunch of other kind of work that needs to be done in schools to make things more, you know, to to orient faculty towards thinking about issues of equity. I mean, those are courageous conversations that people need to have with each other. It implicates curriculum. I mean, I think a lot of these things implicate how schools sit more broadly in their communities. I have a colleague at Harvard, Paul Revel, who runs this group called the Ed Redesign Lab, who tries to get municipalities to form what he calls children cabinets, where you basically get the mayor to pull together not only the superintendent of schools, but the health people, the public health people, the recreation people, the, you know, sort of the library people, like anybody, the police, like anybody whose lives touches children's and to help them think about like, what does our municipal policy look like through the lens of young people? So the kids can come to school every day, fed, housed, healthy, safe, ready to learn. So, you know, there's, there's parts of this that I think can be supported through technology, but a lot of the most urgent challenges that we have in society, you know, are really about how we, how we organize together, how we set policy, how we set norms to, to make things better. Have you been able to measure the impact of the lab's work? We certainly try to do that all the time. Uh, One of the ways, you know, we use an approach to research that we call design-based research. And the idea of design-based research is that you build stuff that you think will be helpful and you try to put it out in the world and you put it out in the world in sort of like progressively bigger ways. So when we start building something, we'll like go to a school and a few a small group of teachers and do some stuff with them. And if we think that's working, we'll make it available to a bigger group online and we'll make it available to everyone online, those kinds of things. As we sort of go bigger and bigger, we hold ourselves accountable to more and more rigorous evidence for figuring out whether or not the things we're doing are working. So when we are first building some new prototype idea, it might be good enough for teachers to be like, hey, yeah, this was cool. I feel like I learned something that was good. And uh, you know that kind of subjective, impressionistic evidence is important, but it's also not sufficiently rigorous to, you know, that's that's not enough to say, hey, this thing really works. So for instance, with the course Becoming a More Equitable Educator, the last time we ran it, we uh, had a number of kinds of pre and post and delayed follow-up studies. So we 
survey and learn some things about our participants before they start the course. We survey and learn some things about our participants right after the course ends. We do a six month follow-up with a fraction of them. And we try to see, do their mindsets change? Do their self-reported practices change? Because we have these digital clinical simulations, we can actually observe behavioral changes over the course of a sequence of four simulations. And all that's good, but there's actually even better research that we can do. So we've just recently submitted a grant to the Department of Education to try to do a big randomized control trial where we would have 40 schools, 20 of them would do it in the first year, 20 of them would do it in the second year. And we would try to see, you know, for the schools that do it first, do we see improvements in student experience? Do we see improvements in teacher-students relationship? Do we see, uh, you know, reductions in disciplinary referrals? a narrowing of racial differences and disciplinary referrals. But the, you know, the thing about a big, like, does it really work study is it just costs millions of dollars. So you don't want to do a, a big, really rigorous, does it work study with like the first idea that pops out of your head? Because the first idea that pops out of your head probably isn't very good. You want to do it after you've sort of done others of these uh, kind of design cycles. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to share with our listening audience? Ah, well, just, you know, it's an extraordinarily difficult time to be an educator. And I'm super grateful for all the folks that are out there who are working through all these challenges and trying to make it work. There's a bunch of research that we did during the pandemic that you can find. Our website is tsl.mit.edu. And if you go to tsl.mit.edu slash COVID-19, we have a whole bunch of reports about teachers' experiences, students' experiences during the pandemic, some of the ideas we have about moving forward from the pandemic. We have a new uh, season that we're putting out for our Teach Lab podcast, which should be out in the fall of 2022, and we're calling it Subtraction in Action. So the idea is that teachers right now are totally exhausted. They, uh, you know, in the past year was much, much harder than many, many teachers were expecting. They were sort of going at 110%. And our schools are not working the way that we want them to. We're still not seeing students come back from breaks, come back day to day, feeling regulated and integrated in the community. There's still challenges with unfinished learning and things like that. And there's lots of people who have ideas which are like, well, okay, well, let's just add more to school. Let's have there be tutoring. Let's have there be extended learning time. Let's have there be summer school. Those all might be reasonable ideas. But when your staff is 110% maxed out, you can't solve the problem by adding more stuff to the system. People don't have energy for it. So actually the place where you have to start is with subtraction. You have to start by thinking to yourself like, well, okay, what can we stop doing? What are we doing right now, which is not in the best interest of kids or not the most useful thing to be doing, or is a way that's going to free up some energy that we need? And uh, we did some really interesting interviews. We interviewed a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia named Lydie Klotz who observed that actually lots of people have a really hard time thinking about improving systems through subtraction. It's not, it's not a way of thinking about engineering, about improving systems, about organizational design and behavior that's sort of intuitive to most folks. So it takes some practice to get good at subtraction. But the, but the real genius of subtraction is that when you get rid of extraneous things, you can focus on that which is more important. Um, so we have interviews with teachers, with school leaders, with district leaders, just trying to get them to come up with their very best ideas about what schools can stop doing so that if we feel like there's other new and different things that we need to do, we have some more space to, to add those things and to focus on what's most important. What is unfinished learning? Oh, that's sort of a term that we've heard other people use. It's kind of a, an alternative to learning loss. 
But the idea that in a given year, we expect students to cover a certain amount of standard aligned curriculum and we and there and there's been less of that kind of learning that's happened over the past two years um, than in the several years prior to that. And so uh, unfinished learning is a way of saying learning loss that indicates that, you know, it's not like lost forever, but that there are some opportunities to find that unfinished learning and get back to work on it. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Justin Reich of MIT. It was a pleasure joining you. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.